Welcome to the Artist Impact Podcast, helping you gain confidence, grow your talent, and advance your impact. Here are your hosts, Paul Gibbs and Nate Miller. Welcome back, everyone. Oh, it's good to be with you again. I am Paul Gibbs. And And I'm Nate Miller. Yeah, I'm in the studio and Nate is at home. Uh, Circumstances just didn't allow us to get together in the studio together. But hey, uh, through Zoom. How many of you have never done Zoom? Okay. I, yeah, I didn't yeah. think so. All yeah, right. I was going to so, say, know, who hasn't done Zoom since COVID? <laughs> Zoom, yeah, really. Zoom? Yeah, I went really fast in a car once. Isn't it, funny, that, isn't it something how terms have changed? Yeah, it used to be Mazda, right? Zoom, Zoom or whatever. I guess, yeah, Zoom, <laughs> Zoom. Um, and what was the first? Did we talk about that? Or did, did see, I'm, I'm, my brain's getting all fuzzy. Yeah, he's got the, the COVID the, brain. The, it's got to be. It's got to be, yeah, or something like that. Um, the first time somebody used the word Google to search for something, oh, you can Google that, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah, now it's a verb, right? Yeah, no, it's a verb. <laughs> anyway, well, hey, friends, hope you're doing well wherever and whenever you're listening. It's good to be with you again. Uh, we got some stuff here we're going to be sharing with you. I got some very interesting, but probably useless stuff. <laughs> but this, this is something that I think you're going to be interested in, guys. Um, five ways to fail in music. No, we're not going to teach you how to fail. We're going to what, teach you what, what, teach you what, what not to, to do. What not yeah. to do, exactly. And we're going to, we're going to talk about, uh, and, and you know what? We're going to talk about CDs, too, because CDs are still here, guys. And we've been talking about it on this podcast. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. Um, Nate, what else we got? I got a couple of really good articles here. There's one on how to sound like a particular genre or artist. So some really great production tips for those of you who are recording your own music, or even if uh, you're just trying to write for a certain certain genre, you're going to go into a studio, um, things you might want to think about as you're creating or composing your songs um, and elements that you might want to ask your producer to add to your, to your mixes to make them sound like those typical genres or artists that you're trying to emulate. And also um, the art of top lining. Have you guys heard the term top lining? Chances are you're already doing it either for someone else's music or your own. And we're going to talk about that coming mm. up. Mm. Yeah. And there's coffee. And there's coffee. I could not find my notes by our mug before we hit record. So I have this little Japanese Did you- teacup mug. Well, that's, that's kind of pretty though. Yeah. It is. It's one of my favorite mugs, but it does not say Notespire on it. doesn't say Notespire. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Did you look in the bottom of the way in the back of the dishwasher? Yeah, I searched, but <laughs> okay. I didn't okay. want to go through every mug. We have too yeah. many. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. Yeah. We got a bunch of them here too. <laughs> anyway. Hey, let's get to the important things first, shall we? Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. What is What is today? Today is October 3rd, isn't it? It's the 4th. It's the 4th. Oh, May October the 4th. Oh, 10-4. 10-4, good buddy. (laughs) Well, yesterday, yesterday, get this. It's not too early to be thinking about Thanksgiving. Um, October 3rd, uh, you have President Abraham Lincoln to thank because he is the one that announced that the nation would celebrate Thanksgiving on November 26th. Uh, That was way back in 1863. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those turkeys are still around in Washington. Wait, no, uh, what did I say? I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, well, today, we're going to move really fast from that one. The Soviet uh-huh. Union began the space age with the launch of Sputnik, and oh, I yeah. know some of you guys remember that. 
All right, the world's first artificial satellite. Uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> let's see. October fourth, it was nineteen fifty-seven. I was only two years old. And I guess that's what started the whole space race, then, right? It, I guess it did. Yeah. And but I never knew this. Where did the word Sputnik come from? Hmm. Sputnik is a Russian word. It means fellow traveler. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, as we're recording now, this is still tomorrow would be uh, October 5th. And that this is nice. This is a national do something nice day. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't that be every day? <laughs> that's that's just I knew, I knew you were going there. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, but today is a great day. A great, I'm sorry. Today, that day would be a great reminder to do good by displaying kindness to strangers or loved ones or both. And of course, in the, in the Bible, Matthew 7, verse 12a says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All right. That's the golden mean, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Great yeah. Um, I'm going to start with our weekly verse early because sometimes we do it at the end. We'll do it or at the beginning. We'll do it. First Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with, all, the, person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to to merely human judgments. Yeah. Hmm. Might want to work that up in context. First Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15. All right. Yeah. I got some did you know stuff coming up later, but let's, uh, let's move on, Nate. What do you got for, uh, why don't you start with something? All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into something this. useful. Yeah, let's let's jump into this article um, called "Sound Alike Suggestions," um, written by Dave Simons. It's it was posted in Music World um, actually on September twenty second. It's a fairly recent article, uh, but how to make your own song sound like a particular genre or artist using specific techniques and tools during the production process. So, uh, the reason this caught my eye was um, Paul and I did a, a video series. If you're watching this video right now, it's on our YouTube channel, No Inspire Music TV. And we did a songwriting series and we did one of the, one of the first videos was talking about um, writing music um, or understanding how to write music based on the convent, con the musical conventions of your particular style or genre. So really understanding what you're writing for is going to help you di help dictate like what types of instruments to use, what types of vocals, vocal technique, um, and all kinds of production things as well. So th this, like I said, this article caught my eye because we had already talked about this, but he gives some really good concrete examples of um, production techniques to um, really stylize your, your recordings. So um, here we go. He says, when trying to compose a new song and nothing is happening right away, occasionally I find it helpful to conjure a particular artist, genre, or era and use that as the basis for crafting something original. Mm. Paul and I often do this in the, in the uh, studio when we're um, writing a song. We'll come up with... Yeah. Uh, 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 what do we call that? Um, an inspiration, inspiration, piece. inspiration, something zone, that yes. like we want it to sound sort of like this and we'll, we'll deconstruct it and figure out what they did yeah. and try to not copy what they did exactly, but learn from it. Um, for instance, I might think of a riff that hints at early eighties techno pop and to make it a true pastiche, create an arrangement with all the trappings of the time, big synths, electronic click track, keyboard, bass, and extra large vocal echo. The 80s had reverb on everything. Um, 
Or if I wanted an old school jazz sound evocative of early blue note recordings, I might encourage things like live reverb, room sound, and natural dynamics in general. The thing is, along the way, I'm just as likely to abandon the original premise and rearrange the song using a completely different and perhaps updated format. Regardless, by focusing on a specific sound, I'm often able to jumpstart the whole writing process. This And like I said, this has been a big help for um, Paul and I um, when we get stuck. Find an inspiration piece. It gives you a little nugget of something like, oh, that's really cool. We can mm-hmm. reproduce that. And yeah. it just yeah. gets you moving. Can I can uh, I give that little example of uh, yeah, go ahead. what we did? We, yeah. We've got... Uh, Friends, we, we got a, a, a guy named Dan, Dan Grimm, and he's working on a CD here, among yeah. uh, several others that we were working with. But Dan wrote a song, and he, and what he played the original version for me, he just came in with his guitar, he played it and sang it. And uh, the, the chord structure that he was using and the melody line, all of a sudden it hit me, that sounds like a Neil Diamond song. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so in, and I was trying to think of which one. And I realized it was Solitary Man. And you guys might, you may have seen a video that I did on, uh, on working on this song, uh, Solitary Man. So what was pulled up Solitary Man by Neil Diamond, kind of like Nate just said, deconstruct it. What mm-hmm. are they doing with the drums? What are they doing with the guitar? What they, this, that one had some brass in it. So <laughs> kind of use that as an inspiration. Again, not right. to copy, but to make right. Dan's song. And you guys will hear that on, on the upcoming album that Dan's working on, but. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect example. Um, He continues, not only is this method more interesting than the usual routine, it gives you some insight into the various ways records have been crafted over the years. Absolutely. For for our purposes, we'll look at several different periods of music and the techniques that help define each. And this is actually one of the reasons why um, certain songs or or sounds sound dated. Like, oh, if if you hear a song, you're like, oh, that sounds like the 80s. Well, why does it sound like the 80s? Well, there's certain is. production, yeah, certain production <laughs> elements that were very right. um, widespread, and that's yep. what gives it that characteristic sound. Instruments that were used in the 80s, synthesizers and things like yeah. that. Yeah. With the goal of working some of that old engineering magic into your current productions. And actually, this is a big thing. Um, if you guys are into um, modern pop music, there's a big movement now. I mean, I think everything's kind of retro now. Like a lot of the, the stuff is going back to. Um, the eighties I'm thinking of like the weekend. A lot of his productions sound like eighties songs. Um, in the early 2010s, there was a lot of, um, EDM inspired, um, dance music, even if in the rock genre, there was a lot of Mm. EDM drops and stuff. So there's a lot of things that go in waves. Um, right now there's sort of a a retro rave going, uh, wave going back to the nine, uh, not nineties, the eighties. Um, and you're hearing that in a lot of mainstream pop. So he starts with the sixties sounding like the sixties. Here we go. The fabled decade saw this fabled decade saw historic advances in popular music and in turn music production. Studios from the time were often enormous by today's standards. Um, Paul sitting in our studio right now, it's very tiny compared to like the studios of, of days gone by. And that ambience figured prominently in the sound of the records, and you'll find out why. Multi-track tape machines became standard equipment during this time, and artists took advantage by frequently doubling lead and background vocals. Even so, groups continued to perform live in the studio, and the sound of instruments bleeding into one another is yet yet another hallmark of this era. Reverb was applied liberally throughout, and by the end of the decade, artists made heavy use of compression, not only on vocals, but drums, piano, and even acoustic guitars. 
So the fact that um, music in the 60s were, was often recorded live um, all together with bands um, recording at the same time in these large hall or these large rooms, these large production areas of these big studios um, lended itself to the sound of the 60s, all these instruments playing together and the, the sounds of them bleeding into each other. Um, so he he's, um, kind of summarizes it this way. Key ingredient onus on recording live band tracks. So onus is a word and just kind of like saying they were, um, uh, how do I explain that? The the key element was that they were um, relying on recording people um, together live rather than recording individually and then comping it together. And that was a key element of that sound. Which actually go takes and I interrupt. It goes back because when, when recording studios first started back in the fifties, you know, multi-track, you, know, you might, you might've had four tracks maybe. And right. it was, it was, it was, you had to record the, the group together. So that kind of carried into the sixties. Um, and then he realized that that was uh, a way to, you got more uh, spontaneous interaction between the musicians and things. So that, that kind of carried, carried over into the sixties. Yeah, I'm, well. I'm thinking of like the Beatles. I think they often yeah. record it um, live together in the studio. Yeah. Yes. Um, rather yeah. than recording their parts individually. Yeah. Um, so drums, what, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and vocals too. Vocal groups would would usually sing together. So drums, what do, what do they do for the drums in the sixties? Um, sparsely mic'd and often allowed to blend with nearby instruments. So they weren't in isolated spaces. Um, they just allowed that to, to run like, uh, reverberate guitars, earlier clean sounds give way to more, um, muscular tones as fuzz emerges. And um, Leslie speakers, flanges, and other unusual effects gain favor by the decade's end. So they were really experimenting with um, pro- produced sounds on guitars rather than just having kind of a clean sound. They're adding um, effects and pedals and really monkeying with um, the um, the guitar sounds because they're able to do that now with um, more um, en- not engineering, but like um equipment that's coming yep. out and yep. allowing them yep. to like really get productive or creative with the production and vocals reverbed vocals are prominent throughout thanks to the then popular live echo chambers as well as plate and spring reverbs so hey, everybody's still reverbs. got a, fen- a fendered uh tape reverb unit and they want to sell <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've heard of these reverbs before plate and spring reverbs and i guess like they became very yeah. popular yeah. in the 60s um which gave there's the, that characteristic vocal sound of the 60s productions so there you go that's the synopsis for the 60s what about the 70s what how, mm. how did that change um with studios now offering 48 tracks or more that's what paul was just talking about 50s might have been limited to four track and so in the 60s you would record together and then bounce those tracks down onto one so you could use the other tracks right now you have 48 tracks or more to work with during the 1970s artists increasingly began building songs layer by layer rather than as a single live performance. Okay, so yeah, that move away from the live um, recording together into multi-tracking. In turn, studios began to downsize. They didn't need all that space. And these smaller rooms were now padded with acoustic treatment so that engineers could carefully control vocals and instruments that were now um, assigned to their own separate tracks. Accordingly, sound leakage, a key ingredient during the previous decade, was now frowned upon. So you have this key characteristic sound of the 60s, and now they're like trying to get away from that by isolating all the instruments in the vocals. Drums became drier and were direct, direct mic'd. Bass was moved to the fore and had greater articulation 
And for extra measure, background vocals were often overdubbed innumerable times and spread in stereo. So just some really interesting differences between the 60s and 70s and how they um, started treating the instruments and the and vocals in the studio and um, multi-layering layering them, isolating them, and then layering them on top. So in key ingredients, he says, diminished room sound as multi-tracking encourages focusing on individual parts, natural dynamics reduced, and wider stereo spread. So here you have like maybe the main vocal in the middle, and then you would pan the background vocals to the left and the right and pan the instruments as well. Um, drums were dry and close mic'd with greater emphasis on kick drum as funk and dance music take hold, takes hold. So this is the beginning of the seventies uh, and the disco era and all that stuff. Mm. So you got kick and bass are probably going to become more prominent. Um, engineers began using microphones on each drum rather than just like the overhead mics capturing the entire kit and the room noise. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what I said, rather than capturing the entire kit with overheads. So really isolating each and every individual um, instrument, including each of the drums. Guitars, so they says the heyday of electric guitar as artists seek specific amp types for their unique tones and effects, such as delay and chorus to hone their sound. For the first time, acoustic guitars became a focal point in pop music led by the um, burgeoning singer-songwriting movement. And then vocals increased use of plate reverbs and compression gives vocals their telltale 70s sheen. So really cool um, how quickly from one de decade to the next, the um, production, um, the elements, the technology, and also just the philosophy changed. Yeah. 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 Okay. Do we, so think it was, do we think it was driven more by the philosophy, the, 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 the songwriters and the producers, or do you think it was driven more by the changes in technology? I think it was a, I, yeah, I think it was an organic thing. Like as tech, yeah. technology became available yeah. and producers are like, Hey, we have all this, these new tools and, and kind of toys at our disposal. What can yep. we do with it? Yep. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it might be a chicken on an egg thing, but I think they yeah. kind of like, they did go they took that hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what about seventies to the eighties? What changes happened in the eighties during the 1980s digital, digital recording technology made its mark on the music world and within a few years, synths and drum machines would become, would become staple items for nearly every recording artist from that time. With so many sounds coming out of a box, uh, microphones were, were reserved for vocals and not much else. Yeah. And by the mid-80s, this straight-in approach would inform the majority of pop hits, bringing genres like techno and hip-hop into the mainstream while rend rendering acoustic, acoustic music almost all but obsolete. This is interesting. It, yeah, it almost mirrors what's happening now um, with our current pop music. There is very little um, actual instruments or organic instruments being used yeah. in pop music. It's almost all computer generated other than people's vocals. And so they're doing a very similar thing in the 80s. So my, uh, microphones are reserved for um, vocals, like the singer's vocals and everything else is being generated um, out of the box, basically, by um, synthesizers. <laughs> and uh, the technology that's available. So what do we got here? Key ingredients, synths to the fore, um, with even greater emphasis on direct sound. That, that, that's, um, I think the hallmark of 80s music is that, that synth-driven music. And it's you know, like plugging directly into the board, not being um, mic'd from a keyboard amp or something like that. Drums, this is a big one. Electronic drums gain favor. Yeah. Traditional kits are close mic'd, 
often with gated reverb added. So they're adding gated reverb to live drums to give them a little more of like that artificial sound, um, more like an electronic kit. Guitars are clean, frequently recorded, frequently recorded straight in. So not, they're not recording the guitar, they're plugging it into the board and a heavy use of chorus and flanging. So again, using the, the effects on the guitars. And vocals are bright with ample delay or digital reverb. I think that was the big thing for the 80s. Everything had reverb on it from the drums <laughs> to the keyboard, even the vocals, just reverb everywhere. So wash of <laughs> it. Um, okay, how about 90s? Going into the 90s. So it says a revival here. Just when it seemed like the era of pure analog was gone for good. And it's, like I said, it's kind of like where I feel like we are now. So I wonder if this is where we're going back to. Um, during the 1990s, new producers like Butch Vig. I remember him. He produced the Smashing Pumpkins. He was also in a band, uh, the band Garbage. He was the drummer for the band Garbage. And Brendan O'Brien helped launch a mini backlash utilizing old school studios such as LA's famed Sound City and technique and techniques in an effort to put some of the diamond dynamics back into the recording environment. The sound they achieved gave rise to the influential West coast grunge and punk movement during, during the early part of the decade. And in the years that followed artists would continue to eschew synths and samples in favor of bone dry guitars and upfront vocals. So I think that's what happened. Um, when the, yeah. the 1980s were all this electronic, um, and like out of the box driven um, music that that was why grunge took the, the and the alternative music took the world by storm. Like out of nowhere, you had bands like, uh, like Nirvana came in with like smells like teen spirit. And just like, it was just blew up and people were just so used to this really hyper produced music. And then grunge came in with, you know, distorted guitars and they're miking drums again. And like people were just ready for this, like, fresh sound again mm. and um so the, it says key ingredients were returned to a more roots-based approach emphasizing organic instrumentation effects and micro miking techniques um with the drums there was a re reviver revival of earlier ambient setup using overhead mics to capture room sound so here we are going back to the 60s yep. Um, yep. with the overhead miking of the drums and guitars grunge permits a return to natural distortion and older tube ampl amplifiers come back into vogue. So rather than using just like a lot of chorus and reverb, um, they're going back to distorted guitars. And the vocals, as, ra as rock and hip hop production styles grow more aggressive, reverb is pushed aside in favor of vocals that are increasingly dry and high in the mix. So really interesting. That That's as far as this um, article goes. Yeah. Um, again, this is Dave Simons. Um, he, he took us through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So obviously, um, 2000s onward, there's there have been different um, production techniques, but I find it interesting now that um, mainstream pop is going back to a lot of these 90s or not 90s. I keep saying that the 80s um, mm -hmm. production styles and techniques, um, kind of a, a pastiche to that, and kind of getting that um, retro sound is what they're going for. So, are we going to see a revival of these 90s techniques where? you know, distorted guitars are going to come back in. Um, are we going to hear like room reverb more? Are they going to um, get rid of a lot of the reverb on vocals and um, opt for more of a dry um, recording and uh, um, higher in the mix, like the the 90s production? I don't know. Mm. Or is it just going to be a hodgepodge of everything? Are people going to just pick different genres? Interesting. And, um, yeah. 
So very I found that very interesting. I like the fact that he gives kind of like concrete examples of how they attained the sound that they did. Right. So if you guys are looking for um, how to make your production sound a little more like these, these decades or these genres, look up this article, like I said, by Dave Simons called sound alike suggestions. And that will give you a few tips for how to emulate those sounds and to get yeah. those sounds for your own productions. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I yeah. like that. I'll tell you one thing I love to see coming back is, uh, and we've watched uh, my wife and I will sometimes watch the voice sh- shows like that mm. or shows like that, where there's live people performing on, on TV on those kind of shows. And um, I noticed quickly uh, and I notice every time we watch now is that uh no matter what song the artist is doing, mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. Uh, or, you know, in a lot of the different genres that uh, that they do, that these these uh, these artists will perform. Um, I hear I hear organ. I hear the B, I hear that Hammond B three sound. Interesting. Uh, in a lot of and it doesn't again different styles and they're they're using it. Um, we didn't see that in the eighties and nineties. I don't think much, uh, even in two thousands. Right. I, I, I don't think we saw that, that, that came, that came to be, you know, back in the sixties, uh, late sixties, yeah. early seventies, when the seventies, I feel like I, you hear yeah. a lot of Oregon, but oh, the, the people, I mean, that's, that's, but that's the kind of thing that I love to see coming back. So it's, it's almost like, um, you know, certain genres of music will, uh, almost require certain mm-hmm. instrumentations, certain uh, writing techniques, certain recording techniques. But I like what you said Nate, about that article saying that certain certain things carry through uh, yeah. those different decades and different different uh, times of music. And wow. you can definitely hear that in production. Um, you know, I think pr- uh, the tech, the technology that we have and the techniques that we yeah. have has really improved our pr- production capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to a really well mixed song now and you listen to a recording that was done even 20 years ago, um, there, there's a vast difference in like fidelity and sound there quality. Is. There is. Um, just because of the the technology that we have available yep. to us. Sure. Sure. Um, but it would be nice to be able to use that improved sec- sound technology. Um, but to revisit some of these older types of um, production mm-hmm. with the better, you know, equipment. Like why can't we produce songs like they did in the sixties with this nicer right. way of, pr- of recording and producing. It's interesting. Um, sometimes when yeah. you hear one, it's been digitally remastered. Yeah. You know, for a, a, an older recording, but digital, but you still, I mean, it does sound better than the it's original. better, but, but, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. Let's take, let's take a quick pause and, uh, talk about some sponsors and things like that and then we'll come back and uh, all right guys before we come back you until we come back you think about when was the first cd ever released all right think about that you can google that if you want all right think about that and we will be right back after this 
This podcast and a portion of the programming on WNSMDB Notespire Radio are sponsored in part by MTS Management Group, specializing in full-service artist management, publicity and promotions, and social media campaigns. MTS Management is on the cutting edge of today's new music business. To learn more, visit mtsmanagementgroup.com. MTS, where indie artists go for major coverage. And now, from a basement somewhere in Pennsylvania, the Artist Impact Podcast. Here are your hosts, Paul Gibbs and Nate Miller. And welcome back to the Artist Impact Podcast. This is episode 41. And uh, you just heard about two of our sponsors, MTS um, Productions and Pauline Williams. Mm -hmm. And we love our sponsors and we love what they do. And we would love for you to be a sponsor of our podcast. Not only this one, the Artist Impact, but we have two other ones. The Jess Scott Music Hour, which is a weekly um, podcast where yours truly over here, Paul Gibbs, plays your music, independent Christian music, um, live on the radio. And that is also syndicated on is it like seven or eight other radio 15. stations paul 15. we are up Wait, to 15 we're up to 15 stations. so that's the just got music hour podcast and we also have the artist insight podcast where we interview independent artists like you give you a chance to talk about your music um your ministry and get to hear some of your songs and the story behind it so yeah. three great podcasts and if you would like to be part of our podcast family either by being part of the podcast itself or sponsoring what we do here we would love to have you join that go to our website notespiremusic.com click on the services tab and you'll find out how you can be a sponsor of one of our podcasts and get mentioned on notespire radio and um on our podcast just like this one it's, anything, it's you want, anything else you want to say it's about a great that? thing oh and, and a radio station wnsmdb yeah. notespire radio you will be mentioned as a supporter there as well yeah right Check that out at notespireradio.com. Well, when was the first CD ever released? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. It depends on how you phrase the question. Okay. Hmm. So October 1st, just a few days ago, it marks the 40th anniversary. I can't believe CDs have been out for 40 years. I mean, That's I still, crazy. I'm still looking for a force to put my cassette, you know, but October 1st old. marks the 40th anniversary of the release of the first albums on CD. So which was first? Okay. Hmm. You might be thinking, and I know you probably were, uh, Billy Joel's 52nd Street album. It featured classics like Big Shot and My Life. I used to play My Life in well, a band I used to be in. That tends to get listed as the first CD to be released commercially. Hmm. But yet, that is not entirely accurate. Now, it was one of the 50, uh, 50 albums released in Japan on October 1st, 1982. All right. Wow. Why was it? Why was Fifty Second Street called the first? Because it just happened to be the first listed in the catalog. Oh wow! All right, probably because it began with a number five instead of a letter. Mm. All right, so it gets the tag as the first CD re ever released. But let's let's dive a little deeper. But before these fifty first fifty CDs were pressed, okay, and pressed. This is a key word. Who pressed? the first CD, well, hmm. that distinguish, um, distinguished, whatever, that distinction, thank you, there it is, goes to ABBA, ABBA, oh. the visitor, 
is the name of the album. It's credited as being the first album to be manufactured on CD for sale. See the difference there? So it was that recorded goes, digitally then? That was re- it, it also, you know, you're, you're, you're right on track, Nate. Okay. It also boasts being one of the first records recorded and mixed digitally. Right. Instead of analog uh, and then convert it to digital. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The official release date for ABBA's The Visitor was November 30th of 1981, but it oh. wasn't released on CD until March of 83. Okay. Wow. Let's go just a little further on this. What was the first CD released in the U.S.? Now, we were talking about Japan there. Hmm. Okay. Now, you guys may be thinking, well, yeah, it was born in the USA USA by Springsteen. (laughs) Well, if you're looking for the first CD released in the U.S., yes. Born in the USA became the first compact disc manufactured in the U.S. for commercial release. And that was September of 1984. And also, while we're at it, let's just add in. What do you think? Your what would your guess be? The first CD to sell sell a million copies. Hmm. hmm. Any ideas on that, gang? Released in 1985. The record goes to Dire like, Straits. Really? Brothers dire in Straits. Arms. I would have yeah. said something like Michael Jackson's Thriller or something. Yeah. <laughs> dire Straits. Brothers in Arms. What it was. Huh. And let me just just uh, just really quick throw you in. Uh, they this article uh, comes to us from CD Baby. Uh, the first fifty CDs released for com- commercial sale in Japan. Okay, that's where it started. We have Al Demiola, mm-hmm. the Tour de Force Live, nineteen eighty two. Andy Williams, Love Standard was the name what? of his album, nineteen eighty two. That was uh, not released in the U.S. Only, that was only in Japan. Uh, original motion picture for the, the, the musical Annie. Oh, I was saw that in theaters. That was like the first movie I saw in the, in the theater. Really? Okay. Yeah, it was a double feature. Is um, Annie and Pinocchio. And Pinocchio. <laughs> I don't know why I remember ah, that, but. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Two more, two more. Art Garfunkel. His album was Scissors Cut. That was August of 1981 which included the song Bright Eyes, which was the theme oh. from the movie Watership Down. Have you seen that one? Oh, maybe? yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. an animated one, right? I think so. Yeah, with the rabbits. I think and so. Yeah. yeah. And finally, uh, well, not finally, just of you know, these five, a song I, I really love. I mean, they, I don't think they didn't do too awful much, but great song. Um, Asia. Okay. With Heat of the Moment. Remember that song? The Heat of the Moment. Love that song. That group was that was a great group. Heat <laughs> of the Moment, Only Time Will Tell, and Wildest Dreams. Um, oh yeah. In your wildest dreams. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Group Asia released in 1982, and all those were released in Japan. So there's a little trivia for you uh, about CDs and well, like um, Japan, I guess because of the, they had the technology, like Sony had the technology yeah. for CDs. Yeah, it's interesting. I think so I think so. Um, next time we're together, we are going to continue to talk about CDs. Guys, I, I think this is really important. And you've heard us talk about it at least once and a couple of times, maybe continually on this podcast, uh, talking about you know whether or not you should release CDs. Should you even make CDs anymore? You know, <laughs> are, 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 they, are they just gone by the wayside? Are they well, viable? You know, yeah. The, the fact is, is CD sales in 2021, we just talked about this a couple 
couple of episodes ago. They grew. CD sales grew in 2021 for the first time in, in 17 years. So we're going to talk next time about why you should, should you, you know, or at least help you make a decision. Now we've got, yeah. I just talked to you about Dan Grimm just a minute ago, and uh, he is going to make CDs. We've talked about it and he's going to have CDs made. And I'm sure there's a couple other artists that will, that will do that. And we'll talk more about that in, uh, in the next episode. But um, yeah. So um, let's talk about a couple ways that you can fail <laughs> in music. But while you guys are thinking of that, we don't want to scare you too much. So <laughs> what Nate has something he can share first, and then I think we'll end up with the whole fail thing. How's that? That's Does that make thing. sense? Let's end with failure. Let's end with failure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, well, okay, go ahead. We're, yeah, we're, right. It'll be good. It'll be good. All right. Great, love it. But real quick, I just had, a, you, you know, you talking about the CDs and everything it made, it made me think of a question. Do you remember the, what, what is the first CD that you purchased? First CD I purchased. Yeah. I'm curious. Like, and for our, our listeners and viewers too, um, I mean, listeners probably can't chime in unless you email us at info at newspiremusic.com. But if you're watching this on our YouTube channel, um, yeah. leave a comment below. I would love to know what the first yeah. CD was that you what was purchased. The first, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to think about that. I remember mine because, I mean, all of my friends had CDs and CD players. I was still listening to cassette tapes because I had a tape okay. player in my, in my car. Yeah, And um, I remember I was, I don't remember what year I was in college, but I was in college and um for a Christmas one year, my younger sister gave me a CD and I remember opening it and being totally confused because I didn't have a CD player. <laughs> How do I do with she this? Was, she was fretting because she realized that I, sh- I should have opened the other present first because the other <laughs> present was a CD player. A CD player. <laughs> but the, the first CD that I got as a gift and that was my first CD that I owned was um, a Green Day album, which I believe it was called Dookie. Silly name okay. for a, an album, but that stands out in my memory because I remember getting that gift and thinking, why do I have a CD? I don't have a CD player. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Green Day's Dookie was the first CD that I personally owned. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. What was the first CD that you ever owned, bought, given to whatever? I don't yeah. remember. You don't remember? Don't yeah, remember. that's your I homework. I did, I did also have a nice under dash, under dash cassette player. Probably yeah. got it from Radio Shack or J.C. Whitney. J.C. Whitney, guys, remember that? J.C. Penny, um, maybe, but Whitney? Yeah, yeah, J- yeah J.C. Whitney. Hmm. Uh, mail order automotive, anything you wanted, yeah. you could get. And uh, yeah, and uh, I, I played my tapes, oh my goodness, until they'd break. I'd take them apart, tape them together, and put them back together, and stick it back in there. Anyway, yeah. okay. All right, so let's move on. Let's talk about top lining. Do you guys, have you have guys heard top, this term? Top lining, yeah. Yeah, so this is a musical it, term. That would be putting a new top on my mustang convertible maybe maybe that's in car in the car industry okay. that's what they call that but uh i've heard this before and you know had a relative um understanding of it um just from context but really good art- article here by jason bloom um we've shared a lot of his stuff on here um but he explains top lining and i bet a lot of you guys are already doing this and don't even realize it um he, he explains for genre, genres like pop hip-hop r&b and edm dance music in most instances, the backing track is created before the words and the vocal melody. The track consists of essentially all the music that will accompany the vocal and typically includes drums and percussion, keyboards and bass. Live guitars or computer-generated sounds and additional instruments might also be included. The only things missing are the top line, which is the vocal melody and the lyrics. 
So the top line of a song can be defined as the melody and the words that a vocalist sings, the elements that go on top of the instrumental track. The top line is what you would hear if you were to, to mute all the instruments and background vocals except for the lead vocal track. So this karaoke is karaoke um, in reverse. Karaoke in reverse. But for those Kinda. of you that, um, if you're a songwriter and you start with the, the music, so you start with the mel- or the uh, the chord progression, or like say you're a guitarist and you just start with um, a chord progression on your guitar and you write that first before you create the melody and or the lyrics. That's the backing track. And then when you go to put your melody or lyrics on top, you're actually doing the top line. So you might be doing that for your own music, or um, you might be an instrumentalist and not a singer and or a lyricist. And so you're creating a backing track for someone else to top line to your song. So just that's an interesting um, Hmm. distinction that maybe you didn't realize. And this is an industry term. Like I said, I've seen it before, but really good explanation of it here. Um, he really explains how this is used in the industry, the, the music production industry. In many instances, multiple writers contribute to the top line with one or more of them contributing the lyrics and others crafting the vocal melody. So I know in worship music, especially now, the trend is to, to co-write with a lot of people. A lot of the songs that are being done um, Sunday mornings in churches that are, you know, CCM songs. If you look at the copyright information, there's like six, seven, eight writers for them and you think how is this possible how did all these different people write this song together um so he's explaining that a lot of times it's the top line that they're um collaborating on in some cases one writer might compose the verse melody while another writes the chorus melody mm-hmm. you would think they'd all write like one person would write all of them but that's not the case similarly a backing track might be created by more than one writer for example one writer might create the beats while others compose the chord changes and instrumental sounds with the piano and the guitar. And we get a little bit of this um, between you and me, Paul, in the studio. When, yeah. when we are creating a backing track for someone else's lyrics, like we're doing um, right now for a person, um, I might come up with like a chorus melody and I say, hey, what about this for the chorus based on the, the, the lyric? And uh, so we put that together, but then I'm stuck for the verse. So yeah. you start working with the chord progression that's already played and you're like, okay, well, the verse could go like this. And then yeah. you come up with the verse melody. Mm-hmm. So we're actually creating the top line um, individually, but putting it together um, into one cohesive song, even though it's being written by different people. So yeah. um, he continues, tracks are often most are most often produced with sounds emanating from a computer or a keyboard. That would be nowadays. But they can also be created with live instruments. Um. He says, I clung to every word at the Hawaii Songwriting Festival when producer extraordinary, extraordinaire Tony Visconti shared David Bowie's process of writing some of his, of his iconic songs. The, the tracks, which were the result of his Visconti editing and distilling hours of the band jamming, came first. The strongest parts were made into sections that would become verses and choruses. After listening to the track, when it was time to record the vocals, Bowie stepped up to the microphone and sang the words and melody um, one to two or one or two lines at a time, essentially creating the top line. So basically the backing tracks were created after hours of jamming. They pulled Mm. out pieces that they thought would work, put them together into verses and choruses. All that was already produced before Bowie stepped up to the um, the mic to record his vocal melodies as top line over that backing track. Cool. Yeah. And I bet a lot of songs are done that way. Yeah. Um, if your songwriting process begins with playing a chord pattern 
and groove on a keyboard or a guitar, and you add words and vocal melody afterward, you are essentially writing a top line to your own track. Country songs are not typically written to a pre-existing backing track. I didn't realize that. Mm. But many Nashville hits have been written that way, and it has become increasingly popular over the past few years. And I think we're seeing the same thing with uh, country hits. A lot of these are co- collabs with a ton of songwriters. Yep. Um, yep. You know, these artists, some artists do write their own songs, but a lot of pop or I, I would think more like the, the pop country hits um, are not necessarily written um, singularly by the artists. They might have yeah. some um, input co- to co- them, writers. but yeah. they're co-written by a lot of session writers. Mm-hmm. And so these people are putting together these things and they're basically industry um, beasts that are, you know, mangled together for these artists to sing. Nothing wrong with them. That's just the way they're producing them now. Right. Um, right. And actually he says, there's no right or wrong way to write a top line. Some writers compose a melody before exploring a title or a lyric while others prefer to choose a title first before crafting crafting the vocal melody or working on the lyric. So the title itself will actually kind of give you a hint as to what um, lyrics to write based on the, 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 the um, what the song is going to be about based on the title. In some instances, melody and lyrics emerge simultaneously. Um, and then he gives some tips to how to help write successful songs that begin with a backing track. So this is kind of the meat of the article here, but I'm curious for you, you guys that are listening and also watching this right now, if you are a songwriter, how, what is your music process or your songwriting process? Do you start um, on the guitar or on piano writing the music first, coming up with a chord progression and then um, maybe kind of humming a melody to that and then adding the lyrics later? Or do you start more from a melody that's that's in your head and maybe com- coming up with dummy lyrics first and then creating chord progressions and movements that go under that? So there's no right or wrong way. People have different processes and sometimes you do one or the other. Um, some people are exclusively um, write the music first, but I'm curious what your songwriting process is. Mm. Comment down below if you're watching this on YouTube and let us know what you guys do. We'd love to hear. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah. yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not on YouTube, you can always email us at info at notespiremusic.com and tell us your story. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll reference you and talk about that on one of our podcasts. We would love to do that. Yeah. So many different ways to do things. And um, or if you like to collaborate, if you have your yeah. if you, if you, if that's maybe that's almost exclusively what you do is collaborate with others. Maybe you just write music. Maybe you just write lyrics and you collaborate with others to put the whole thing together. How does uh, tell us how that works for you? How, what's your what's your process in making that all happen? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about a couple of the techniques that he gives for um, top lining here. Um, he gives a, a personal anecdote or a story or, uh, from his childhood. I'm going to skip that just for time's sake. But one of the ways to do it is to, I, I, um, he says, to identify the emotions of the song. Listening to the backing track, mm. identify the emotions it evokes. Is it happy? Is it whimsical, um, melancholy, hopeful, romantic, sad? Does it make you feel like dancing? You know, is it going to be like a hip hop or EDM song? Um, He gives a nice quote here from Michelangelo. Michelangelo said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. Mm. So to paraphrase um, paraphrase Michelangelo, the words and music for our songs are already embedded within the backing tracks. It's our job to release them. So it's a really cool way of looking at it, kind of having an uncarved block. And yeah. you already have the the masterpieces already there. You just have to chip away at the inessentials until the truth is revealed. Um, mm. 
that that's a cool way to so based on the emotions of what you hear in the backing track that's going to dictate your top line which is your melody and your vo- uh, your lyric um another way choose a title start with a title after you've determined the mood elicited by the track think about the words and phrases that encapsulate that emotion if you stockpile potential song titles and phrases which he rec- recommends that you do browse through them while listening to the track hopefully one of them will seem like a perfect fit if not, leave your internal sensor outside the room and keep listening to the track until the title reveals itself. Sometimes he finds um, titles by listening to a track while driving or walking. It's a really great way to um, stir creativity. Um, if you find yourself getting stuck, go do something else that's mindless. Taking a shower, mowing the lawn, going for a walk, things will bubble up to the surface. And um, he recommends that by um, by. He recommends doing that as you listen to the backing track for ideas to pop to the surface. Drink coffee. That's another one. That's a good way. (laughs) All right. Title placement and melody. There might be more than one place in the musical track that lends itself to accommodate your title. For example, in song structure that includes verses and choruses, you might, your title might appear in the first line of the chorus, the last line of the chorus or multiple places within the chorus Ideally, the music in the backing track will make it clear where the title should sit within the track. Most songs, you're going to hear the title mentioned in the song. Otherwise, like you, why would you call it that if you never mention that? Sometimes you can get away with not having your title in the song. I don't recommend it because people, if they don't hear the title, they don't remember the title of the song. And they're like, oh, what's that song? Like they might remember part of the tune, but they can't name the song if the title's not in it. So there's been a few songs like that, but we can't remember (laughs) them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can, yeah, some, some people are very creative in how they get away with that, but it's, it's always a good thing to have the title in the, in the song. Um, melody is crucial to your song's success. So don't settle for the first melody that pops into your head. If you choose a title before writing the vocal melody that will accompany it, try singing your title in various ways. And uh, he gives several examples here. I won't read the examples, but here's what he, here's some of the ideas. Explore that um, placing the emphasis on different syllables. Um, try incorporating repetition into the melodic phrase by repeating part of the lyric Um, or try assigning um, longer notes to some of the words. You might also explore adding nonsense syllables like vocalizations like whoa or oh, or, um, you know, like, or hey, or any kind of like vocal sound um, in your um, title within the melody to really highlight it. So there's different variations you can use, explore different notes within the melody um, you might try writing phrases that include include that notes that repeat um, unexpected melodic intervals, ascending notes, descending notes, or notes that initially ascend then descend. So there's a couple of different ideas for um, um, melodic ways of highlighting your song title within the chorus. Um, he gives an example here of one of the songs that he wrote and how he did that. Again, I'm going to skip that for just for time's sake. Um, lyric tips. Writing a lyric to a track is not unlike writing a lyric to an existing melody or a lyric with no melody. The primary consideration when writing lyric for an existing musical track is prosody. Here's another good music term, which is a marriage between the music and the words. We also talked about this on one of our songwriting videos, which is on our YouTube channel, Notes by Music TV, um, when we talked about melody and harmony. Um, So go back and watch that if you need more help about marrying your, your lyrics to the melody. Um, the lyrics need to be consistent with the emotions evoked by the accompanying music. For example, a slow, mournful track that relies heavily on minor chords 
will likely work best with a sad, melancholic lyric. So if you're talking about something that's really happy and joyful, you're probably not going to want to put that to a backing track that's written in a minor key. So just be mindful of those things. Multiple paths can lead to a successful song, but in his experience, when it comes to time to write the lyrics, in most instances, the title was selected before the rest of the lyric was written. Um, I don't think I've always found that. I think I've written lyrics before and then pulled my title out of um, the lyrics that I've written, but his, his, what he's found to be successful is writing a song title first. And then um, the lyrics come out of that. Maybe that's been your experience. I don't know. Um, Again, you can share that below if it has. Um, He says this allows the verse and bridge if applicable, if if you have one, if it's applicable um, to be written in a way that supports, um, supports and leads to the title with the title, summing up the meaning of the song. Um, I think that makes sense. Um, maybe your your title just comes organically out of, out of what you've written. But if you've picked it, if you've picked it beforehand, that's certainly going to help you um, create your lyrics based around that. Whether your lyric is written before or after your title, be sure to include lines that are f- that are fresh ways to express your concepts. Lines that will make publishers, recording artists, and other songwriters say, "Wow, I've never heard it said that bef- that way before." If anyone else could have written that same line, throw it out. So he's really pushing you to be original here. Do something that nobody else has heard or done before. And you're going to be more um, more likely to be picked up by a publisher or a recording artist to sing your song. Or just to get a catchy song if you're going to be the artist that's singing it. Um, if the title is not established before the rest of the lyric, he says, review the lyric to be sure that the title feels satisfying when the answer or when the listener hears it. Um so, and he sums up his whole article by saying this again, this is Jason Blooms um, talking about um, top lining. He says, how to write top lines to an existing track, um, identify the, the primary emotion the track conveys and come up with a title and a fresh angle that reflects this feeling. Compose fresh, memorable vocal melodies and lyrics that complement the track. Then rewrite your melodies and lyrics until they are as strong as you can possibly make them. And soon you will be creating songs that are composed in the manner that countless hits have been born. So a really cool article explaining top lining. Again, like I said, I've heard of it before, seen the, the phrase um, mentioned. Um, I think he did a really good a, a, um, a job of explaining like how it's sort of used in the music industry now and kind of um, explaining the fact that a lot of songs are written um, in ways that um, multiple people are, are contributing to either the backing track or the top lining process. So it might just not it might not just be one person who's creating the backing track, it might not just be one person who's creating the the top line, the, the mm-hmm. eventual melody and vocal that you guys hear. Um, it's a collaborative process in both areas, um, but it's really encouraging for those of you who do one or the other to realize, hey, I don't have to do it all. I yeah. can be a lyricist or a melody yeah. writer or an instrumentalist who creates backing tracks, and someone else can top line for me. So really. Really cool. Like I said, really cool, informative and encouraging article for those of you who um, didn't realize that that's what you were doing or that's what mm. you need for your track. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is, yeah. Something we haven't touched on uh, here before. Yeah. Not specifically, so, but yeah. So yeah. I like, I like that. Um, so guys, tell us your comments. Uh, if you're watching on, on YouTube. Uh, yeah. I'm always interested, TV, always interested in other below. people's um, songwriting process. Exactly. Have you heard of yeah. top lining before? How has it worked for you? Uh, you want to know more about it? 
you know, just, Hey, get to, let us, let us know. You'd like to know more about what Nate was just talking about top lining and writing music. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a real quick pause and we will be right back. We're going to talk about failing <laughs> in music. How not yeah. to be, be right back. And we are back with Nate Miller and myself, Paul Gibbs, Patrick McGuire. You've never heard of him, but <laughs> you're, you're going to know what he wrote. He's a there writer, musician, and he's a human. And he lives <laughs> nowhere in particular. All right. Well, th- anyway, this, this comes to us from the Reverb Nation blog online. And uh, Patrick McGuire is the writer of this article. We've got some unique takeaways here or uh, takes, I guess, on uh, five ways to fail in music. All right. So write down, write down these uh, five ways and don't and avoid them. And avoid them. All right. Well, Patrick says, uh, you know, success, of course, you know, friends, it, it means something different to all of us. We all have our own definitions of success. Um, and that goes, you know, as songwriters and musicians uh, and everything else in life. But, you know, we need to take a look, he says, about what failure looks like. Hmm. We have our, our views of what success looks like. But, right. you know, we need to know what failure looks like as well. You might think you failed in some way. If, for example, the single that you just released has got hardly any hits or any views, any downloads, whatever. Uh, maybe your band just split up and mm. you think, well, that's the end. You know? But there, you know, there's almost always something broader going on behind the scenes that causes the problems in music. And again, according to Mr. McGuire, uh, here's five, five things that, uh, quite often ha- are happening. Letting, first of all, letting differences getting in the way of collaborative relationships. All right. We were just talking about, and we've talked about it a lot here on this podcast is collaboration, working mm-hmm. together with others. Now I got to confess real quick early on in my songwriting stuff. I didn't want to collaborate with anybody. I'm the best <laughs> songwriter. I know how to write my songs. I know how to play guitar and I know how to play keyboard. I don't really know how to play anything else, but that's okay. Uh, it's, you know, it's going to sound great and I don't need any help. Well, guess what? I found <laughs> over the years that it's not when you let somebody else into your songwriting and you're, you're and you're not getting help. You're it's it's not helping you. It's adding to you. It's yeah. adding to what you can do. All right, it, it's 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 awesome. So anyway, mm. but you know, so many of us we let our differences. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna co-write with her <laughs> because of she is this or she does that or he doesn't play guitar the same way that i do or he doesn't you know whatever you know the differences it might it might be musical differences it might be something non-musical but anyway we let those differences getting away you know it takes most it says here most bands take years to develop the relationships and and the music and the sound that connects with the audiences um but the secret formula to this to the success of many bands is they have found ways, get this, not to break up. Mm. Yeah. The relationship in bands are unique, just like in all human relationships are unique and surprisingly complex, duh. Especially us musicians. I know, you know, we're all weird. When arguments <laughs> about money or petty differences begin to drown out everything else, bands are at risk of forgetting why they got together in the first place. And that yeah. isn't that so often true of so many relationships in life. But um so we have to keep our priorities straight, shall we say? All right. Um, 
And remember that not every, you know, on the other hand, okay, not every breakup in music is a failure. Okay. Sometimes relationships just run their course mm. and they need to end, but we, you know, that that's, that's a given as well. Um, so, but don't let your differences get in the way of collaborating and working together, maybe collaboration, whatever that means. It might read writing together. It might simply mean playing in a band together, whether it's, whether you're, it's a duo or a four, four, five, 10, whatever piece band, don't let your differences get in the way of what you really want to be doing. Uh, number two, criticizing your work so much. I, 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 I have to do this. Yeah, I got um, my hand up already. You're going up right? Okay. <laughs> Come on, guys. My own worst critic. Yeah. Criticizing your work so much that you can't ever finish anything. Uh, oh, yeah. Anybody? Anybody there? Okay. Hello. All right. Um, objectivity is essential for having mm. an idea of what you create is whether it's good or it's not. Okay. But there comes a point when too much criticizing can be paralyzing. Yeah, come on. We've all been there. Analysis paralysis. Yep. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, If you love creating music, but you can't manage to finish any or most of your songs, this could be the reason why, Uh, you know, you're, you're just, you've just got that. Well, it's never good enough approach. Mm. What, what, Nate, what is the, what is the quote? Uh, A good, a good mix or a good song is never completed. It's just um, surrendered. Oh yeah, that's right. Surrender to it. Okay, <laughs> there, there it is. It's done. You know, you have to stop. You know, you have to say, okay, it's, it's, I'm done. You know, and, uh, anyway. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> keeps them. This, this can keep us. Let's see. Never quite going to. It's a weird and somewhat self-indulgent way. Yeah, when you stop and think about it, and <laughs> and you know, it's. I think it's a way of. Uh, Patrick says it's a way of protecting ourselves. Mm. Yeah, because if you never put anything out there, mm-hmm. you won't fail. Exactly. But you won't succeed either. <laughs> you won't succeed either. Nobody's going to criticize you if you don't put anything out there. Well, but that keeps us in a state of perpetual arrested development. Uh, what did mm. you say now? Analysis paralysis. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So it takes courage, friends, to finish a song, but you know what? It's going to be worth it. And if you never finish one, you're never going to get you're never going to be good at it. You're, you're just never going to do it. All right. Number three, focusing on conventional success more than creative fulfillment. Mm, that's a big uh, one. Yeah. yeah. You want to, you want to, you know what? I'm going to put you on the spot. You don't, you don't <laughs> have the notes, but go ahead. Focusing on conventional success more than creative fulfillment. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think all artists struggle with this. Um, I, I would think even more so now in the social media um age that we're in i mean there we know that um instances of like depression and mental mm-hmm. health um issues have gone s- skyrocketed since social media has come onto the platform and that's just for people like looking at other people's lives and and they're they're, they're highly polished you know edited photos and thinking oh man they look so perfect mm-hmm. and everything's well you know put together and they don't have all the problems that i have because you're just seeing their best side you know foot forward so that's just like for people's lives. But what about for music? You know, for music, yeah. Uh, er, you know, everybody's watching everybody else, and there's so much content that's going out all the time. And there's this rat race to try to keep up. And so it's all about like, oh, I got to keep producing and put more content out there, and you know, satisfy the like the, the the voracious appetite that all the content consumers have out there, and to, to meet mm-hmm. the algorithms and all the stuff. And 
in the meantime, like you said, you're forgetting the the why, like, why did I start doing this in the first place? Yeah. Um, is, is it about like just expressing the music that's in me, um, trying to share a certain message that God has given you, if, if that's what you're about, or is it about trying to get known or recognized and, yeah. uh, you know, have more likes on, on Spotify or Facebook or Instagram yeah. or wherever yeah. these platforms that are that, you know, that you're on, we all, I think, struggle with that in a different degree. And it's yeah. so easy to get lost in that and, and forget about like, it's about the music. It's about creating the best song that you can or the best <laughs> platform to um, share the message behind your music or, you know, whatever your purpose is behind the music, remembering that and not getting lost in all that other stuff that just keeps layering on top and just burying us. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big absolutely. problem. Got to keep our priorities straight folks. Yeah. Nate yeah. said it, you said it really well, Nate. Yeah. Um, Cause if you're measuring your success, like you said, by number of streams, number of sales, how much money you're likes, making yeah. uh, likes and, and things like that, you will never really succeed. But Think about this. The first time you write a song, you record a song, whether you written it, whether you, maybe you wrote it or you didn't write it, but let's say you're a songwriter, the first time you get that song written and get it out there and somebody listens to it, you've already succeeded. <laughs> you've, you, you have done what you set out to do. And that's, yeah. that's how you should measure your success. Just repeat the process and, and go, go there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, number four, don't let negativity shape your work, friends. Yeah. Um, negativity can be a massive, massive obstacle. It kind of flows right from the one we were just talking about. If, mm. if you're always thinking that you're not successful, you're just going to start getting a negative attitude. Uh, your music might be amazing. You might be good, well promoted and th- everything like that. But it does. if things don't turn out the way you hoped for or that you want them to, then you're going to have this negative attitude. You're going to think you're a failure. It might be it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. And the more jaded we become, the less we uh, the less joy we find in, in, in creating the music. Um, and also. Uh, we need to create music in a sustainable way. And this points, mm. this brings us into our final and number five burnout. Yes. Creator burnout. burnout. Yeah. It's not, it's one of the biggest reasons that musicians quit. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's not only, but it's, it's also why so many musicians don't continue making music into the thirties or forties or fifties or sixties and on through their lives. I like to say, if you're a musician, you're always a musician. It, it's built in. It doesn't, right. it's not, I'll do, I'll do it today. I won't do it tomorrow. Yeah, you I can't myself, not do it. <laughs> can't not do it. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, creating sustainability means making music in a way that doesn't strain your relationships, friends, your marriage, your friendships, your job. It doesn't strain those music. I mean, yeah, there's little ups and downs in life. I know that, mm-hmm. but cre- it means making music in a way that doesn't strain all your relationships, doesn't put you into debt. It doesn't keep you from being healthy and a fulfilled person. Uh, music is hard, okay, to pursue seriously. We know that just as anything worthwhile in life is. And sometimes we think, well, we're just one success, one, excuse me, one sacrifice away from landing that huge record deal or whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, I think of the Kenny Rogers song, uh, She Believes in Me. Okay, <laughs> look, look it up. Anyway, um, the, the all, friends, listen to this, the, those all or nothing success stories that we hear about in music, those are rare. 
They mm-hmm. hardly ever happen. And they and if they do happen, they're often dramatized, you know, for branding and promoting purposes, you know, right. look at this one, you know. Uh, <laughs> But for most of us to find our audiences and, you know, do what we're called to do, we need to diligently work for years and years and keep it up. But to do that, you've got to be able to create music sustainably yeah. uh, or you're going to burn out. You're going to uh, you're going to burn out. So uh, let me recap those real quick. OK, number one, don't let differences get in the way of collaborating with others. OK, put your ego and everything else at the door. OK, like they <laughs> said at the beginning of We Are the World. OK, check your right. ego at the door. Uh, criticize your work. Don't criticize your work so much that you can't finish anything. Okay, don't be so critical that you never get anything done. Number three, don't focus on uh, conventional success more than you're, cre- you're focusing on your creative fulfillment. That should be your priority. Number four, don't let negativity shape your work and everything that you do. And finally, keep your work, keep your music sustainable to avoid that big, the, the B word. The B <laughs> word, yeah. Burnout. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good well, stuff. We to, yeah. Yeah. We've given you a lot in a few minutes, huh, friends? I think that I think that's a good way to look at it. You know, we always we, we always yeah. talk about like how do you succeed? Like what are tips or tricks or something like yeah. to to succeed? But looking at the flip side of the coin, what are the <laughs> things that cause you to fail? Mm. And like knowing that will help you succeed. Like these are the things to avoid so that I can do the things, things that avoid. will work. Yeah. 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 It's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, if you're watching the YouTube channel, please comment below. What do you think of those? Any ideas that you guys have to, uh, that you uh, would like to hear more about or ideas that you have that uh, maybe ways to, to prevent? Maybe how about sharing a little bit of your story that maybe something that almost took you out? Mm. Mm. Did you, have, you, have you dealt with burnout, for example? What did you do about it? How have you dealt with it? Have you dealt with it? Are you fighting it right now? You're not quite sure. <laughs> hmm. Let us know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, in, in mail, uh, info at eatnotespiremusic.com. Did I say that right? Info. <laughs> That's our email. Yeah. It's, it's here. It's right here. Okay. All right. <laughs> Anything else, Nate, before we go? Um, again, follow us on social media at, we're at Facebook at Notespire Music, um, Instagram, Notespire Music. If you're watching this, Notespire Music TV on YouTube. Um, you can find everything at our website, notespiremusic.com. Email, like Paul said, info at notespiremusic.com. You can listen yeah. to Notespire Radio at notespireradio.com or how would they listen to it on the on their mobile? Want to listen device? on your phone? Yes. Yeah. No, t- today's, uh, today's cell phones are yesterday's. No, cell phones are today's transistor radios. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just look, look up the Live 365 app on your phone. I'll put, an, I'll put a thing. I, I keep remembering it's this side. Okay. Yeah. There's a, here's a, here's a link for somewhere about live three, six, five. Yeah. It lets you listen to internet radio on your phone for free. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So till we see you again, guys. Yeah. I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope it's been a blessing uh, to you. And, you know, we are here to help you do whatever it is God has called you to do, whether it's video production, recording, you want some help with songwriting, you want to drop all those differences at the door and collaborate with us. We would love to. We'll try to drop ours too. (laughs) I'm kidding. All right. Uh, Um. I, I think I think ours are pretty well gone. Anyway, uh, we would love to work with you, help you. We are working with several artists right now that that have uh, 
have music that they want to get out, get recorded and promoted and things. We are all about letting, uh, or help, excuse me, helping you do what God's called you to do. Uh, send your music in. If you've got some recorded that we could consider for the Jess Scott Music Hour and for Notespire Radio, we would love to hear your music. We will definitely consider it. If it goes on one, it goes on the other. And um, let's see what else. I guess that's about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you guys so, for joining us for another episode of the yeah. Artist Impact Podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have more. We're going to talk about why you should release CDs. Yeah, you should. You should. <laughs> All right. Until All right. we see you again, friends, take care of yourselves. And take care of each other. We'll see you next time. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Artist Impact Podcast is a production of Notespire Music, LLC. At Notespire Music, we empower independent Christian musicians to grow their God-given music potential by refining their craft and extending their music ministry reach through mentorship, training, trusted resources, music production, and artist promotion. Notespire Music, helping you gain confidence, grow your talent, and advance your impact. For more information, visit notespiremusic.com. That's N-O-T-E-S-P-I-R-E-M-U-S-I-C dot com.